Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 96, the all-new Sony Burano. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Welcome back to the Filming with Josh podcast. If you're new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here in the podcast, we talk about all things video, from new gear releases to how to price your work. We cover it all on this podcast. We also have a Facebook group that is private called Filming with Josh. So be sure to go to Facebook and in your search bar, type in Filming with Josh and ask to join the group today. The Filming with Josh Facebook group is a continuation of this podcast and is also a place where you can come and share your videos, ask for feedback, and keep up to date with gear releases, behind the scenes photos of different projects I'm working on, and more. I love to see you all there. Today's episode is somewhat of a follow-up of last week's episode where guest Kyle Bamberger and I chatted about some new gear releases and the upcoming Sony Burano. That was actually how we ended the episode, was chatting about what we thought the Burano might be. And so today's episode is going to be somewhat of a follow-up to that, where I kind of talk about what the Burano is, how it compares to what we thought it might be, and more. And spoiler alert, it is very similar to what we thought it was going to be in last week's episode, but it does come with some surprises that we just simply weren't expecting. So without further ado, let's dive into the weeds and get into what makes up the new Sony Burano. One quick note before we dive into this podcast, I do want to say this is going to be a tech-heavy podcast with a lot of technical jargon being thrown at you. So come with your thinking cap before you listen to this because I'm going to cover a lot of stuff. I'm going to get in depth on some things, so be sure to put your thinking cap on before you listen to this podcast, and if you have any questions about anything I talk about in this podcast, go to the Filming with Josh group, post your questions there, and I will do my best to answer those questions for you to help you uh, be able to follow along better with this podcast. So if you are a beginner and you don't know much about video, some of this could go over your head. You should still get the point, but this is a tech-focused very informative podcast that's going to dive into the weeds and some of the technical aspects of this camera. So again, be prepared to think and don't be afraid to go to Filming with Josh and ask questions and I'll clear some of it up for you there. I'll start off by telling you a little bit about what the Burano is. You might hear some mouse clicks in the background because this just got released a little over an hour ago. So I'm kind of be clicking back and forth and kind of trying to keep up with some of what's in the camera and whatnot. So if you hear my mouse clicking, that's what it is. So let me start by saying that the Sony Burano is going to do exactly what Kyle and I thought it might do, which is fill in the gap that the F5 and F55 used to have. If you don't know much about Sony cameras, um, back in the day, you had the F65, which was a very expensive cinema camera. Eventually, that camera got replaced by the Venice and now the Venice 2. Then you had underneath that the F55 and F5. The F55 had a uh, global sensor and was a very popular camera for shooting things like the Crown, ESPN 30 for 30s, a lot of sports docs because it didn't have any rolling shutter issues because it was a global shutter camera. So it was a very uh, popular choice for fast action type stuff, but it also worked really well with the R7 recorder to give you uh, really great recording options um, with great color fidelity so you could create projects like the Crown, which looked beautiful. So it worked really well in a wide range of projects from documentaries to narrative work. Underneath that, you had the F5, which had the same sensor as the FS7. The FS7 actually came out after the F5. And the F5 was 
cheaper than the F55, but it still had a similar design, which was more of a squared off boxy kind of design. Um, and it could take the R7 recorder like the F55, only it had a rolling shutter sensor. Um, didn't produce quite the same image or have quite the same options as the F55, but still a great camera that was very popular for dock work, uh, as well as commercial and corporate. And then of course the FS7, FS7 II came out. They became very popular kind of mid-level dock cameras. And then underneath that, you had the F, uh, the FX, uh, no FS five and so on and so forth. Um, and over the years, you know, I said that the F 65 got replaced by the Venice and Venice two and the FS seven got placed with the FX nine and the FS five got replaced with the FX six. Boy, there's a lot of S's and X's in there. Um, and so we've replaced everything over the years, except for the F five and 55 which still today remain some of the golden standards for dock work for projects like ESPN 30 for 30s. Those cameras have lasted for over a decade. And if you invested in those cameras back in the day, you paid for those cameras over and over and over and over again through your work. And you can buy them for pennies on the dollar. I'm talking $5,000 or less on eBay today. Um, they're going to have a lot of hours on them, but they're still viable options if you are considering buying a really great documentary style camera and you want to get something that it maybe doesn't have the most modern sensors, maybe it doesn't have autofocus or things like that, but that has just options like the global um, shutter on the F55, uh, for example. Like if you want that in a Sony body, you can get it for a very cheap price by going to eBay. So those cameras are still viable today across many platforms and many mediums, depending on what you do. But there hasn't been a replacement for them in all of these years. And over a decade later, we finally have the replacement for those two cameras in the Sony Burano. The Sony Burano has an 8.6K sensor, which is really interesting. You see, the Sony FX, the Sony, excuse me, Sony Venice 1 had a 6K sensor, but the Venice 2 had an 8.6K sensor. And it was speculated that it had the same 8.6K sensor that the Sony A1 had. But I've never seen that confirmed. I've seen speculation, but I've never seen it confirmed. However, the A1 and the Venice 2 did both share an 8.6K sensor. The new Burano also has an 8.6K sensor, and Sony themselves said it is not the same sensor as the Venice 2, but it is so similar that you could shoot the two side by side and you would not be able to tell the difference. So it does not have the sensor of the Venice 2, but it is very, very similar. Same resolution uh, in terms of what the sensor resolution itself is, and um, is going to give you very similar color. It's going to basically be indistinguishable from the Venice 2, which is huge because that makes this a great B cam for the Venice 2. It also means if you buy this camera at a substantially less price at $25,000 retail, you will get an image that will be very similar to the substantially more expensive Venice 2. So very, very interesting move by Sony to give this camera a very similar sensor to this Venice 2 and a very similar look at a much cheaper price. And then from there, beyond the cheaper price, here's where it gets really interesting. So this camera records um, 8K up to um, essentially 30 frames per second internally in full frame. And then if you jump into a full frame 6K cropped mode, it can record up to 60 frames per second or 59.94. If you jump into super 35 mode and record at 5.8K, then you 
also have frame rates up to 60 or 59.94. And then if you go to Super 35 crop mode, which is a Super 35 mode with a slight crop, then you get the ability to shoot all the way up to 4K 120. Now, it does not look like this camera can do from what I gather. And remember, this just came out a little over an hour ago. So bear with me here. Things could change. I'm going off the information I can find available on websites like newsshooter.com. But from what I gather, it doesn't look like this camera can shoot full frame 4K 120 like cameras can do on the FX6 and FX3, for example. However, it's got so much more going for it that that doesn't really matter. So essentially, to recap, you've got 8.6K up to 30 frames per second, 6K with a slight crop up to 60 frames per second, Super 35, 5.8K up to 60 frames per second, and Super 35 with a slight crop up to 120 uh, frames per second and 4K. Very interesting. It's a lot of resolution and frame rate options. Kyle and I on last week's episode speculated on whether this camera would have an 8K or 6K sensor. <laughs> and then I laughed earlier this week when Sony Alpha Rumors, who gets stuff wrong so often, they came out with this big rumor that this camera was going to be 4K only. And I knew that there was no way that that was possible. And I was definitely right. This camera was what I hoped it would be, which is 8K. Now, I want to talk about that for a second. A lot of people online often talk about how 8K is overkill. We're never going to have 8K be the standard and how many people have 8K TVs, yada, 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 yada. Well, if you say that, you're just, you've never worked with it. Let me just put it that way. Because 8K is tremendously useful. I have 8K on my two Sony A1s, for example. They both shoot uh, 8K at 10, up to 10-bit 422, thanks to a firmware update that came out last summer. And the 8K is downsampled from 8.6K and it looks amazing. When I shoot 8K on the A1s and I use like my FX6 as a B cam, I have to do a lot of sharpening in post with the FX6 to try to have it look anything like the A1's 8K because the A1's 8K just smokes the 4K on the FX6. And even if you take the 8K and you downsample it to 4K in post, it still is way more detailed than what the FX6 and FX3 that I have can do internally. So the 8K, if you shoot an 8K and then you work on a 4K timeline, you are going to get a really detailed image. Now that's not always desired. Sometimes detail can be too much. Say you're shooting this person's skin, you might see too much uh, wrinkles and imperfections in their skin. Maybe that's what you're going for if you're looking for something that's gritty and real and raw, but maybe you want something a little smoother. It might be a bit much, but that's okay because you have the ability to knock that sharpening down by adding things like diffusion or working with softer glass. So there are workarounds for it. For me, I would always rather have a camera that has more resolution and more detail that I can soften myself than have a camera that doesn't have it to begin with. I know I'm not saying that the FX6 and FX3 don't have uh, good detail. They do, but not compared to the 8K and the A1. The A1 just smashes those cameras. It's, it's amazing. And then, yeah, you have post-crop options. I'll be honest, I don't do a ton of cropping in post, even when I do shoot an 8, 8K on the A1s. I don't crop a lot because cropping and reframing is not the same thing as changing your focal length. When you change your focal length and you zoom in physically with the lens or you change to a tighter prime lens, for example, the depth of field changes and you are isolating your subject more from the background. So the shot in and of itself just has a different depth to it 
than if you just simply crop to get a tighter image in post. So when I crop in post, it's usually for some sort of creative purpose, like someone's talking in a moment and they're saying something really profound and I want to crop in tighter to their face in that moment when they say it. That's the time I may crop. Or if I notice something I don't like in post that was on the edge of the frame, maybe I'll crop in to crop it out. I mean, there are times I crop, maybe I crop to the beat of the music because it's a, a kind of an upbeat, fast moving project I'm working on. I do crop some, but I don't crop a ton. So for 8K for me, yeah, it gives you croppability in post, but that's not the main reason I shoot in it. I shoot in it because it looks gorgeous on a 4K timeline. That's why I shoot in 8K. And I think that being able to shoot in 8K is a tremendous option today. And I think that that should be the standard for a lot of cinema cameras moving forward. Now, not every manufacturer goes that route. If you look at a lot of the Alexa cameras, they still, and you know, a lot of the Aries, they still shoot 4K only or have 4K sensors. And they have proven over and over and over again that high resolution isn't everything. However, it is nice to have resolution. And I appreciate higher resolution cameras, and I love that the Burano has an 8K sensor. It's going to help this camera create a beautiful downsample 4K image in post. Plus, I recently did um, like a kind of a highlight reel on my website. I talked about it in a previous podcast episode. Um, but a lot of the shots I used were projects I've shot years ago because I was I was not trying to show like my latest work from the previous year. I was just trying to show the, the scope and type of work that we offer in our business. And so I went all the way back to like TED Talks, for example, that I shot many years ago. And some most of that stuff was shot in 4K, but there were projects that I shot in HD because 4K wasn't the standard at the time. And so when I released that reel for my website, I had to release it in HD because the content I, I shot in years ago for some of those shots that I used, they were only shot in HD. I would have much preferred if everything was in 4K so I could have put that file in 4K on my website. And yeah, you can upscale those files, but I just chose not to. So I rocked a 1080p file. Well, what this has to do with 8K is if you shoot in 8K today and you make a reel for your business, for example, six years from now, it's probably still going to be viable, right? Because you're still six years from now probably going to have a 4K or 6K timeline that you're going to edit on. Chances are four, five, six years from now, you're not going to be releasing 8K content. You might, but even if you are, if you shoot an 8K today, you could still use 8K six years from now on an 8K timeline or downscale it to 4K or 6K or whatever it is that we're working with timeline-wise, five, six, seven years from now. So I don't like the word future-proof that some people toss around because I don't think that anything necessarily makes your work future-proof. But I do think that if you shoot in higher resolutions today, it does allow you to maintain a better image in the long run years down the road when you might be working on higher resolution timelines. And had I had the ability seven, eight years ago on some of the shots I captured to have shot them in 4K, it would have looked better today on some of the newer con newer projects like the newer highlight reel I came out with that incorporated some of those older shots. So I say shoot in the highest resolution you possibly can on every project. Storage space is cheap today and you can bill your clients. If you're shooting for a passion project, then maybe it's on you, but I bill my clients for every project for storage space. I estimate I always overshoot and I estimate how much storage space I think the project might take up and I bill them per terabyte. And 
that to me makes it to where I'm never out of pocket for storage space. So as a result, there's really no reason today to shoot in lower resolutions outside of high frame rates. Now, if you're if you buy the Burano that has an 8.6K sensor and you want to shoot 120 frames per second with it, you have to go down to 4K. And that's that's fine. But when you can shoot in higher resolution, the highest you can, because it will help your content be able to be used in projects years down the road and still be able to keep up with whatever comes out and whatever the standard is then at that time. And it gives you some post flexibility if by chance you want it, not to mention the fact it just looks better on a 4K timeline when you start at a higher resolution to begin with. I vote use high resolution when you can. Now, there are some other circumstances where you might not. Maybe you're doing a live stream project where you don't want to be in a higher resolution, or maybe you're shooting like a talking head interview and it's going to be a really long interview and you just don't want to work with that in post. That's fine. Or maybe um, you want, like there are certain modes that might have, I think in this camera, one of the super 35, I think it might be the 4k or the 5.8k mode. Don't quote me on that. But one of those modes has the best rolling shutter performance. So maybe you want really good rolling shutter performance. So you might jump into a lower resolution um, based on you know what's going to give you the best performance in the camera. But when you can, always shoot in the highest resolution possible. And this camera being at 8.6K and having the ability to shoot at 8.6K is a massive win, in my opinion. Now, moving on from the resolution and frame rates, the fact that this camera can shoot in Super 35 4K, as Kyle and I talked about in last week's episode, that's another win. You see, the FX6 and FX3 cannot do that. They shoot in full frame 4K only. Now, you can use the um, clear image zoom to... Uh, somewhat recreate a Super 35 crop mode by zooming in 1.5 times digitally. And Sony does some wizardry there to make the files look pretty good. But sometimes those files don't hold up. It's not the same thing as having a dedicated Super 35 sensor or a dedicated Super 35 mode. I definitely am a full frame snob, but I love having access to Super 35 modes in my camera, especially when they shoot at 4K or higher resolutions because it gives you more reach out of your glass and it gives you access to use Super 35 lenses, which could be Super 35 anamorphics. It could be Super 35 just standard cine glass. It could even be using glass like the Canon 17 to 120, which is a widely used uh, documentary style servo zoom lens that you use for you know I see people using for docs or reality TV stuff like that. You get access to use lenses like that at 4K or higher resolutions thanks to the Super 35 4K and Super 35. 5.8K modes on the Burano, and I, I like working with cameras that have that. The FX9 has that. You can shoot full frame or Super 35 in 4K resolution, but if you work with the FX6 and FX3, for example, you don't have that. This camera has that. It has Super 35 in 4K and in 5.8K, which is really, really useful. And then, of course, it's also full frame, so you can use full frame glass and have the full frame look. So I love having Super 35 modes at 4K and higher resolutions. I use that in my A1s all the time. If I'm filming wildlife, I'm on 100 to 400, which is a full frame lens. A lot of times I'll jump into Super 35 mode and shoot Super 35 4K, which is oversampled from uh, the 5.8K uh, crop on my A1, which by the way, you'll notice I'm using a lot of the same numbers between the A1 sensor and the Burano, right? Like the A1 has an 8.6K sensor. It can only record 8K but it has an 8.6K sensor just like the Burano. When you jump into Super 35 mode, 
on the A1. It has a 5.8K crop of the sensor, but it doesn't record that. It just downscales it to 4K. Whereas the Burano does both. It can downscale the, it to 4K and Super 35, or it can shoot a 5.8K uh, resolution in Super 35 mode. But it's very interesting to me how similar the A1 sensor and resolution options are to this camera. And I said in last week's episode, I would love to see the Burano use the A1 sensor. And I'm not saying it does, but it is dang close. Now let's talk a little bit about the camera itself. The camera weighs a little over five pounds, which really is not that heavy. Now the, the FX6 is going to be a bit lighter than this. The FX9 potentially a little heavier, but it falls kind of in between those two builds because it's got a smaller design, kind of similar to the FX6 in a lot of ways, a smaller boxy design, which I like. Um, so it's sm- It's going to be like not as long as the FX9. You're going to have a shorter body, which is great. I love that for working handheld. Um, a lot of people like shooting sh- shoulder mounted with the FX9. I don't shoot a ton of shoulder mounted shots anymore. I do sometimes, but usually if I'm going to film something kind of documentary style, I'm going to shoot handheld and cradle my FX6 into my arm, like into my armpit, um, or I'm going to use an easy rig. If I were to buy a Burano, I would probably do the same thing. So this camera isn't designed quite like the FX9, which has a longer body and is meant for going on the shoulder out of the box. It's more of a boxy camera, not too dissimilar in size from the FX6, just a little bigger and a little heavier. Um, But I love the small design of it. It comes with a PL mount on the front of the lens for mounting PL cinema glass or PL, like you can get that Canon lens in a PL mount, I believe. Um, So it comes with... uh, a PL mount on the front of the camera. However, you can unbolt that from the camera revealing an E-mount. So you can run E-mount glass on this camera or PL. Now, I think that's significant. You could do that in the Venice as well. But the reason why I think it's significant to have that in a camera of this size and at this price point is it shows you that this camera is targeted at users who plan to use PL-mounted cinema glass or PL-mounted Super 35 documentary style glass on this camera body. However, you can unbolt it and go to E-mount at any time, which means if you want to run autofocus capable lenses on this camera, you can. And what's amazing is unlike the Venice and Venice 2, is this camera has autofocus. Very similar to what you're going to find in the FX6 and FX9. Now, I didn't find anything to back up what I'm about to say. This is pure speculation. But the FX9 and FX6 have been out for a while now. I'm assuming that the autofocus in this camera is probably going to be better than it is on those two cameras because it's more modern. And to have that in a cinema camera is ridiculously cool because it means as a dock shooter or an owner operator of this camera, you can use it with a PL mount on bolted to the front of the camera and run PL glass and crew up, have a designated focus puller and run this on a narrative setting or on a project where you're doing like a large commercial and you've got an entire crew. And then you could take that same camera and unbolt the PL mount off the front of it and convert it to E-mount and then slap a G master lens on the front of this and go shoot uh, a run and gun project for Uh, a local client if you wanted. It opens up a huge window of opportunities as an owner operator to be able to use this in a more crewed up type of scenario as well as a more stripped down, run and gun, pull your own focus and use autofocus to help you out kind of scenario. As an owner operator myself who runs what I would call a middle ground business, 
I find that to be very appealing. What do I mean by middle ground business? Well, my my business, Rustic River Media, I have a couple people that work under the company and then I work with a lot of contractors. And what I love about that is it allows my, my business to be able to scale up or scale down. And so if I want to work on a commercial project, like I have a, a bid out for a really expensive commercial project right now, and that particular project I would crew up for and would have an entire team, everything from a gaffer to camera operators to having uh, production assistants, etc. And we could crew up and, 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 and use contractors that I work with, location sound recorders, etc. to do that commercial project. But at the same time, I might grab my FX6 and run out and go shoot an event or go... Um, shoot like a run and gun dock by myself or maybe do a passion project, etc. And so I work in a lot of different realms. I'm not going to be hired anytime soon by Apple to do the new iPhone launch. But at the same time, I'm not shooting weddings with my cameras, right? Like I'm in that middle ground. I play a lot in the commercial corporate space. I crew up for projects. I crew down for projects. A camera like this is perfect for that because you can run the PL mount to the front of the camera run PL glass, shoot this in the in the codec that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit and and shoot this camera at the highest level and have an image similar to the Venice, but then take the PL mount off the front of the camera and then turn around and go shoot a run and gun project by yourself with it. So it plays really well in a wide range of of, of applications on a wide range of projects. You would never take the Venice to shoot a run and gun project by yourself, just like you would never take the FX6 and use it for a $100,000 commercial project, right? Like those cameras don't have a lot of crossover. This camera does, and that is very appealing to me. Now you might could say, well, why not just take a camera like the FX6 or FX9 and slap a PL mount uh, adapter on the front of it, like PL to EF adapter, like a Metabones or something like that. You could certainly do that, but this is going to be way more secure because you can bolt it into the camera body to make it part of the camera body and then mount your PL glass to the camera. And then when you're ready to take it off, unbolt it. That kind of flexibility is way more stable and way more sufficient than running this camera with an adapter. Now, the Venice and Venice 2 had this capability, but make no mistake, those cameras were not designed to be used very often by a solo shooter or in a smaller production. Those are high-end cameras with a very expensive price tag, very expensive recording media options that were not meant for those fields. But for this camera, it has that same capability, but is designed to work in both fields. And I love that about this camera. Now, I mentioned that we were going to talk about the codec, so let's get into that. Traditionally, on Sony FX cameras, like the FX6 and FX9, for example, you're almost always going to be working in XAVCI, which is what you call an all intra codec. And typically, you're going to be recording that internally at 10 bit 422. On those cameras, the only other codec option is Longop, which is an 8 bit file. And the only reason to really use Longop is if you're trying to save space. An example of that would be. If I was live streaming an event, but I also wanted to record a backup of everything we were live streaming into the camera, but it was an all-day event, I would probably switch to Longop. That doesn't have to be shot in 10-bit. 
and it doesn't need to be in the XAVC I file that's going to eat up a decent amount of space. And again, hard drive space is cheap today, but it does mean that you're going to have to swap cards out and stuff during the live stream, which isn't ideal. So you're far better off just switching to long op and shooting a small 8-bit file. But those are the only codec, codec options you had internally. If you wanted to up the quality of your imagery, you had to shoot to ProRes RAW externally. And honestly, I don't like ProRes RAW. I think it's kind of a gimmick, especially on cameras like the FX6 and FX9. The FX6, for example, if you shoot in ProRes RAW, you aren't getting the kind of RAW that you think you're getting. Like a lot of people confuse RAW as being just this unanimous thing that all cameras should be able to do and that RAW is going to be the same on all cameras, meaning that you just have the same flexibility you would have if you were shooting a RAW photograph, for example, in Lightroom. But that's not what it is, right? Like if you shoot 16-bit RAW on a RED, it's vastly different than shooting ProRes RAW on an FX6 or FX9. The FX6 and FX9 and FX3 and a lot of those cameras that shoot RAW externally, the ProRes RAW that they're shooting to is a 12-bit linear file. And compared to 10-bit 422 log internally in the cameras, you're not really gaining much. The really only advantage you're getting is you're getting a slightly higher uh, bit rate. You're getting a little bit more color information but you're getting it at the expense of having to record externally, which isn't ideal, and you're losing noise reduction. Now, a lot of people are gonna be like, oh, but noise reduction's bad, we don't want it, we don't want it. Well, guess what? Almost every camera has noise reduction. If you go on the FX6 or FX9 and you turn noise reduction off, you're not really turning it off. You might be turning some of the processing off, but there's still some level of processing that's happening in the camera that is applying a form of noise reduction. But when you shoot the ProRes RAW, you bypass that. And when you do that, you are going to find out really fast how noisy those sensors really are. The Sony cameras like the FX6 and FX9, they actually have a tremendous amount of really qual like good quality noise reduction happening internally in the camera that you don't notice is there. Like even if you turn noise reduction off in the FX6 or FX9, it's still doing a form of noise reduction whenever that image is being recorded and it helps clean up the sensor tremendously. If you bypass that and you turn that off by going to ProRes RAW, you will see a massive difference in the files where ProRes RAW files are going to be a lot noisier and you're going to have to start making noise reduction a part of your everyday workflow. And I know people all the time like to say online, Noise reduction should always be done in post. But you know what? They're just full of it. Most people who say that only say that because that's what they've heard, because that's what the industry has said to them. That's what the industry tells you. But in reality, you do not want noise reduction to be a part of your everyday workflow. You don't want to go shoot a project, a corporate project, and have to sit there at your computer and totally slow your computer's performance down by noise, adding noise reduction to the majority of your shots. But you shoot in ProRes RAW and that will start to become a, a part of your workflow. Maybe not on every shot, but you will see a difference in the noise level on ProRes RAW versus the internal files, even if you have the internal files set to noise reduction off. And you do not want that to be a part of your workflow. I don't like the... ProRes RAW files for that reason. Plus, you're not really gaining anything. Like if you look in 
in Resolve, for example, you can't even work with ProRes Raw natively in Resolve, and most people are switching to Resolve today, myself included. I love uh, uh, Resolve. I, I work in Resolve Studio. It's an amazing program. So if I shot in ProRes Raw, I would have to like convert the files or use a plugin to be able to use the files natively in Resolve. And so if you use it in a program like Premiere, the only real advantage you get is you get to maybe change your white balance a little bit easier in post. And you might could change the recorded ISO value. And you might can change things like the log that it was shot in, like which log it was shot in. You can actually change that in post. But whoop do you freaking do? Like you're not, it's not like you're getting all this dynamic range and like this huge ability to grade your files that you couldn't do with 10-bit internally. That's a misconception. And so my advice is learn to use a white balance card and learn how to know your white balance in camera and learn how to expose and set your exposure properly in camera. Use the correct ISO value in camera. <laughs> Shoot it to base ISOs, guys. Come on, it's not that hard. And, you know, pick a log format like S-Log3 and learn how to grade it. Like, to me, you're not really gaining anything. Like, I don't find myself in situations where like, man, I sure wish I could really crank my my white balance here without it affecting the image. Like, dude, if I did that, if I had to do that, it would be because I did something wrong, right? I should nail my white balance in, in, in the field. And if I have to tweak it in post, I'm just tweaking it, but I shouldn't have to like completely go from like 5,500 to 3,200. That would be a user error. And the same thing goes with like my, my ISO values. I choose the correct base ISO and I work off of that. I'm not needing to change that in post. So I hear all the time people saying, man, you got to shoot raw, got to shoot raw, got to shoot raw. And they want to shoot externally to an Atomos recorder on these Sony cameras, but they don't realize they're adding noise reduction as a part of their workflow process. And they are not really gaining anything outside of extra work for themselves. So I don't like ProRes raw. I don't work with it. I work with the internal raw files or excuse me, the internal, um, XAVCI files for that reason. Well, on the Burano, you finally get an internal codec that is a step up above the XAVCI files. It is not a raw codec, but it's similar in some ways. You're getting a file type called the XOCN. And the XOCN files are found in the Venice and Venice 2. On the Venice, you have to use the R7 recorder to record the XOCN files. On the Venice 2, you do not. And interestingly, on the Burano, you also do not have to have the R7 recorder to record the XOCN. I'm actually kind of surprised by that because I would have thought that the Burano to protect the Venice 1 would have to use the R7 recorder to record XOCN. But no, I was wrong. Just like the Venice 2, it can do XOCN straight inside the camera. Now, what is XOCN? XOCN is a 16-bit linear file. So earlier I mentioned how ProRes RAW is a 12-bit linear file. And I mentioned how that is a big difference between, there's a big difference between that and recording something like a RED, which has a 16-bit RAW file. Well, XOCN is very similar to RED in that it is a 16-bit file. Now, it is not a RAW file, but it is still 16 bits. And it's going to give you a much bigger advantage in color fidelity and post and the ability to push your image in the grade than a standard 10-bit file or 12-bit ProRes RAW file would give you. So this is a huge jump in the ability to grade your images in post and your ability to um, 
capture a little bit more dynamic range, have more fidelity and more flexibility in post without the image breaking. Now, this is interesting because you see red has this patent, right, that allows red to have a compressed raw codec that they can record in camera, but other companies cannot. And companies like Apple have filed lawsuits against red trying to combat that, and they've all lost. The only company that has gone into a lawsuit with Red and hasn't technically lost is Nikon. Nikon came out with the ability to shoot ProRes RAW and Nikon RAW inside of the Z8 and Z9. It started with the Z9, and Red sued Nikon over that for violating their patent. It went to court and then got dismissed, but it wasn't, it was almost like it, it didn't get thrown out or anything. It was almost like Red wanted to redo their case, or maybe Red struck a deal with Nikon. We don't know. That has never been leaked out in the, in, in, in the public. All we know is, is that Red sued Nikon for violating their patent, and then the lawsuit got dropped, and we don't know why. Maybe Red's going to refile, or maybe Red struck a deal with Nikon to allow Nikon to do that for some monetary value or exchange of technology information. We don't know. But what we do know is outside of Nikon, Red has filed lawsuits and have won every single time over their patent. And only cameras that Red, camera manufacturers that Red give permission to for some sort of exchange of technological information or a monetary you know, payment or monetary value, only camera companies that have struck a deal with Red have had that ability to have internal RAW. Like Canon has the ability to shoot internal RAW. Now, we don't know exactly what deal Canon has with Red, but like it's speculated that Canon let Red have the ability to use an RF mount on their camera bodies and gave them some information on how to record autofocus in camera or have autofocus in camera uh, in exchange for Canon being allowed to have a raw light codec or Canon, Canon raw light codec. Uh, but we don't know for sure if that's exactly what happened. But what we do know is that Red controls the field here. Red is the one who has the ability to dictate who can and cannot have a compressed raw codec. Well, Sony has never, to our knowledge, struck a deal with, can uh, with Red that has allowed them to have internal raw, which is why you've never seen it in a Sony camera. The XOCN, on the other hand, gives you similar flexibility to raw. It is a 16-bit file. It is going to give you a ton of room to push your files around and post, and it's going to probably retain more dynamic range because the files won't break when pushed in post. Similar to how a RAW file would be, but it isn't technically RAW, so it's not violating Red's patent, which is very interesting. And the Venice had this, and I said in last week's podcast with Kyle, we both said we would love to see this file or this format in the Burano, but I never envisioned that the Burano would have the ability to do it internally. I thought it would have to go to the R7 recorder like the Venice does, but it doesn't. It could do it internally. That's big. So if you buy the Burano or if you rent the Burano for a project, you get a file that is similar to a 16-bit RAW file from a camera like RED, but without technically being RAW. And the other thing I like about it is it's going to make it more user-friendly in DaVinci Resolve. And unlike ProRes RAW, you're actually gaining something. Remember, ProRes RAW, you're adding a bunch of work to your workflow for not much gain. This is different. Going from 10-bit 
to 16 is a massive jump. And finally, finally, we're going to see a codec and a camera that is 25,000 or less that is by Sony that is a true jump over 10 bit. And I love that. Now, technically, the F5 and F55 can use the R7 recorder and can also have access to better file types like this. But those are much older cameras. We haven't seen that in any of the modern cameras outside of Venice. I'm really happy to see that here in the Burano. I do want to make one note. There is a difference. There are forms of ExoCN, and the Burano doesn't have every form that the Venice has. It only has ExoCN LT. Obviously, this is to protect the Venice line. But the XOCN LT is still a 16-bit file. It's just a more compressed version. But the nice thing about that is it's still a, a manageable file size. So you can shoot a 16-bit file and have a manageable file size that isn't all too dissimilar. If you look at the charts on like newshooter.com, if you look at the, the file sizes, they're not all that dissimilar from shooting in something like ProRes 422. In fact, ProRes 422 technically is a bigger file than shooting on the XOCN LT. So you get a smaller file size than if you were shooting in ProRes 422, but you're shooting at 16-bit. So it's really, 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 really great format. If I owned the Burano, that would be almost exclusively what I would shoot in most of the time. Except there is one other codec they added, and it kind of irks me that the FX6 and 9 don't have this, but it's XAVCH. Now, there is a form of this codec in the FX3, as well as cameras like the A7S3. And what it is, is it is, an, it is a compressed H.265 codec. And you can still record 10-bit 4-2 in this codec. Now, traditionally, you used to not want to shoot an H.265 because computer performance would be horrible. But computer performance has really changed over the years. Like my uh, M1 Max computer, which is fully spec'd out, can easily handle H.265 files. And they still record at 10-bit 4.2.2. And if I look at like my FX3, for example, if I shoot the FX3 in XAVC-I, or SI technically, and I shoot it in XAVC, uh, or the XAVC H or HS file, which is an H.265 file, I can't tell the difference between the two. They look indistinguishable. The difference, though, is that the XAVC SI file in the FX3 is going to give most computers better performance Whereas the H.265 on a lot of computers might still be a hang-up, especially if you have an older computer. But if you have a computer like mine, it doesn't matter. So I still shoot an XAVC-I or XAVC-SI, depending on the camera I'm working with, just because it's what I normally work with. But I do switch to the H.265 codec from time to time. A good example is I do a lot of work for home builders who hire me to go shoot homes and communities and amenities and things like that so they can market their subdivisions online. And they have, these home builders typically have editors that work at the corporate headquarters. I cover the Texas region. I send them files via Dropbox, and then they edit the files. So they just hire me as a shooter. Well, since I'm Dropboxing them the files, I typically shoot in H.265 so that the file sizes are smaller, more compressed, and I can send them over Dropbox. Whereas if I shot an XAVCI or SI, it would be a much bigger file size. It would be much harder to, to send them on Dropbox. It would take me longer to upload and take them longer to download. But being able to shoot an H.265 dramatically decreases the size of the file, making upload and download times much more efficient. So I could go shoot for an entire day for a home builder and Dropbox them a ton of files, but only it only it's only like 60 or 70 gigabytes. 
and I can have that uploaded in a couple hours. They can download it in an hour or two and we're good to go. So I can literally have the files uploaded the day after, the, like the same day of the shoot. I can come home and have them uploaded before I go to bed at night. That's amazing. So I do use H.265 for stuff like that. And it's still 10-bit 422. And it still looks to me and to most people indistinguishable from XAVCSI on those cameras. The problem is the FX6 and FX9 have never had that ability. If you don't shoot an XAVCI on those cameras, then you have to shoot in long op. So you go from a 10-bit 422 file to a measly little 8-bit file. And there is a difference there. So unlike XAVCSI in the in the FX3, which looks the same as the 10-bit 422H265, you don't have that option in the FX6 or FX9. So as such, I never use my FX6 for shoots like that because I don't want to shoot and give them an 8-bit codec, but at the same time, I don't want to Dropbox them XAVCI files, which are much larger. So I only use my FX3 or my A1s for those projects. Well, now in the Burano, and this is why it irks me, is because there's no reason for the FX6 and FX9 not to have that codec option. But the Burano does have it. And remember earlier, I said the Burano is a camera that plays in both playing fields. It can play on a crude up project shooting XA, uh, shooting the XOCN file um, with a, a large crew running PL glass, but at the same time, you can use autofocus capable lenses and go shoot a project like I just described in H.265 and have a nice compressed 10-bit file. So it, it, it again goes back to the fact that it plays in both fields really well. You got a 10-bit compressed file and a 10-bit six, 10, or 16-bit uncompressed file, which makes it work in two different playing fields very, very well. I love that it has that option. Um, so that's something I wish the FX6 and FX9 would get. They don't have it. I wish they would get it, but I'm glad to see that the Burano has it. And the Burano records to a CF Express Type B card, which is very nice. The FX6 and FX9 records to CF Express Type A. Kyle mentioned on last week's podcast that he would like to see it record to a CF Express Type B card because CF Express Type B cards have faster read-write speed potentials than CF Express Type A, which would potentially give a camera like this more internal recording options. And that's exactly what happened. By giving this CF Express Type B, it opens up the door for them to do the XOCN file recording type internally in camera. So that's a good move. I don't think the FX6 has to have that or the FX3 has to have that because they're never going to get the XOCN files. But I am glad to see that the Burano has a CF Express Type B card so that it can record those files internally. And it's much better than the card type you have to get with the Venice and Venice 2, which is not CF Express Type B, but instead a much more expensive uh, uh, media format uh, um, and, and card type. So I'm glad we don't have what the Venice has, that we have CF Express Type Bs uh, in this camera because they're more affordable and more readily available and you can record everything you need to internally on these cards. The Raptor, the V Raptor by Red records to CF Express Type B. Um, and I, I believe the C500 Mark II from Canon does. So I'm glad to see that the Burano can do that as well. I think that was a really, really good move. The Burano has other features that you find on cameras like the FX6 and FX9, like cache recording. It's got really great cache recording options. And uh, I think having X, uh, having the CF Express Type B cards help it have such great cache recording options. Cache recording is basically a pre-roll where the camera's always recording and deleting constantly, whether you hit record or not. It's just constantly recording and deleting so that if you're filming fishing content, for example, and you don't know when a hook set's going to happen, you can just have the camera pointed at the fisherman. And then whenever they, you see them hook a fish, you hit the record button and it captures, let's say, 10 or 15 seconds before 
that happened before that because it's always recording and deleting. So as soon as you hit record, whatever your cache record setting is, let's say 10 seconds, it goes back and saves the 10 seconds that happened before you hit record. Um, that's always been a great feature to have when filming wildlife or action, sports, when you don't know when something's going to happen. And I'm glad to see that the Burano has that as well. The Burano also, also has uh, XLR ports on the camera, and these XLR ports are actually in the body, which I like. The FX9 has the XLR ports in the body, but the 6 does not. So if you take the top panel on the FX6, you lose the ability to record audio in camera. It, at that point, only has a tiny little built-in onboard mic, which is basically useless for anything other than scratch audio. The Burano, like the 9, has XLRs built into the body, which is nice and does open up a lot of doors for uh, owner operators who want to record their own audio internally when working without a location sound recordist. Um, this camera also, interestingly, has the ability to run this brand new, um, uh, it's a new style of a viewfinder. You know how like when the FX9, like you buy the FX9, you get this viewfinder, the 7, the FS7 I used to have that I used to own. It, it had the same style viewfinder. It was just a loop that you put over the screen. You get something similar with the Burano, but it's much better, way better designed, um, and is much much more appropriate for turning your LCD screen into a viewfinder. Um, and we'll make that a, a great option for dock work because it has that, uh, that, that uh, viewfinder loop. If you, if you want to see what it looks like, go to newshooter.com, look at the Burano article, and scroll down toward the bottom, or maybe more like halfway through the article, and you'll see the viewfinder loop. It's really cool and is much, much better than what the FX9 comes with or what the FS7 comes with. The Burano also has an optional um, uh, grip and, and extension arm that you can buy. Unlike the FS7 and FX9, it does not come in the box with the grip in the in an extension arm. But if you want to run this from the shoulder and put like a shoulder pad underneath the camera, you can buy a grip with a handle or an arm similar to the FX9 and FS7. It just doesn't come with the camera. It is like 1400 bucks or something like that, uh, I think is what I heard. Uh, I, I may be wrong, but it is a, you know, a pricey upgrade, but it does allow you to convert this camera into a shoulder mounted camera between the loop and the grip, the optional upgrade for the grip, you can convert this to an FX9 style build. It will be kind of front heavy, so you might want to add some weight to the back, um, but you certainly can do that. It looks to me, from what I gather, like this camera runs uh, V-mount batteries, which is fine. I'm sure it has to in order to support everything that's going on in camera. So if you're not a V-mount owner and you want to rent or buy this camera, you will have to invest in some V-mounts, but that's not a big deal. V-mounts are pretty affordable today. Let's talk about some other major things. I said earlier that this camera has autofocus, but you know what else it has? It has IBIS. And that's incredible because it also has the electronic variable ND. Now, the Venice and Venice 2 have a standard stepped um, ND where you choose different ND settings, whereas the FX6, FX9, FS5, and FS7 Mark II all have the electronic variable ND where you can scroll a wheel and basically have an infinite ND setting option from... Uh, I think it's like two stops to seven stops, which is very useful. And it also allows you to use things like auto ND, where if you're filming waterfowl coming from a, a white sky into dark timber, the ND will auto expose for you, which is very, very useful. Or maybe you're doing an indoor to outdoor, outdoor to indoor shot. You can turn the ND on and it'll automatically control the exposure for you. Very, very useful. Well, the Venice and Venice 2 don't have that. But interestingly, the Burano has it. 
And more interestingly is that Burano also has IBIS. And it has been stated in the past that it is impossible to have an image-stabilized sensor, because remember, the sensor moves if it has IBIS. So the sensor can't be locked down. It's actually moving inside the camera body. It's been stated that it is impossible to have a sensor that has IBIS, the ability to move around, along with ND at the same time. Supposedly, you can't have the two together. You either have to have ND or you have to have IBIS, but you can't mix the two because they would interfere with each other. However, Sony has proven that they have figured out a way to have both because this is the first camera ever made to have an electronic variable ND and IBIS in the same camera. And I think that is a huge, huge achievement, not just for the Burano, but for future Sony cameras. That means that future FX9s, FX6s, and who knows, maybe even FX3s, they might have IBIS, which they already do, plus the electronic variable ND. And to me, that's massive. If I had to choose between IBIS or the ND, I'm going to pick the ND every time. Having built-in ND is extremely useful. But IBIS does have its place. And there are times where I shoot with the FX6 where I kind of wish it had IBIS, especially if I'm running and gunning, covering an event with like a 24 to 70, and I'm like, man, I wish I had IBIS here. And I, you know, I, I practice good handheld uh, shooting techniques, and, and I get good footage, but sometimes IBIS would be nice to have. And sometimes I shoot with the FX3 over the 6 just because it has IBIS. The Burano has both. It has IBIS and it has ND. That is amazing. And it's one of the first cinema cameras I've ever heard of that has IBIS. You could call the FX3 and FX30 cinema cameras, and technically they are in the cinema line that Sony makes, and they do have IBIS. But if you're talking about like a real cinema camera with like a legit cinema body, it's the first camera I'm aware of that has ever been made to have IBIS, and it combines it with ND, which was always said was not possible. So a huge achievement by Sony. And again, as an owner-operator, if you're going to buy this camera or rent it, it does make it a very viable option from high-end commercial work where everything is going to be stable to run and gun work where you might want to shoot handheld and have benefits of IBIS. Just once again, makes this the perfect owner-operator camera if you don't mind shelling out 25 grand for it. So there are other things about this camera that I could talk about, but overall, you kind of get the gist. It's an amazing camera. It takes V-mount batteries, takes CFexpress Type-B cards, has uh, a really nice, compact, lightweight body that's kind of in between the 9 and the 6. Sorry if you hear my kid crying. I, he's upset about something. Can't control it. I'm recording this at home today. Um, you get you know, everything from an H.265 10-bit file to um, a 16-bit XOCN file internally, which is amazing. You get 8.6K. You get 5.8K. You get 4K and plenty of full frame and Super 35 recording options. Um, great color science, very similar image to the Venice 2, uh, indistinguishable, in fact, as Sony says, with autofocus and ND and IBIS. I mean, a PL mount that can be removed to convert to E-mount. I mean, what more could you want? This is literally the camera that Kyle and I, in our last episode, said we wish we could have. Never dreamed it would have it, and never in a thousand years thought that they would have IBIS in this camera. Never saw that coming. That was a huge surprise. But this is like the perfect camera. There's only a few things it can't do, one of which is it can de-squeeze an image for viewing if you're shooting with anamorphics in the monitor, but it can't record de-squeezed. That's reserved for the Venice line. But that's not a big deal, right? As long as you can monitor it de-squeezed, you can always de-squeeze in post. But it is technically missing it. I mean, it's missing a few things. But honestly, if you were to ask me, Josh, what's the perfect, what would be the perfect cinema camera? 
I would have described to you this camera. In fact, I wouldn't have even completely described it to you because they gave this things that I never would have expected a camera like this to have, like Ibis. But the fact that it has it makes this the perfect camera. I've, I've got to say, this is a huge move by Sony. And in my opinion, this is the best owner-operator camera ever made, in my opinion. It not only is going to replace the F5 and 55, but this is going to, like, if you were interested in the V-Raptor, there's really no reason to get it anymore. Unless you are doing something very specific. If you needed extremely high frame rates, or if you need something like the Super 35 8K mode for filming wildlife, then sure, maybe the V-Raptor, V-Raptor uh, Rhino edition might make sense. Or maybe you just like Red's color science. But outside of that, there's no reason to buy V-Raptor as an owner-operator over this camera. I mean, unless, again, there's a very, very, very specific use cases that might make sense, but 90% of the people who are considering a V-Raptor would be better off buying this camera because as an owner-operator, having things like IBIS, built-in um, electronic variable ND, autofocus, H.265, and XOCN, affordable media recording type, everything that this camera has makes it the perfect owner-operator camera. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, it's $25,000. Yes, that's a lot of money. And, and I get that. But if you look what it's doing, it's filling a gap that Sony hasn't have filled in a long time. I mean, this is replacing the F5 and 55, and this is around what they cost, especially the F55. There's been nothing for a long time between the FX9 and the Sony Venice 1. There's been a huge gap there, and this finally fills that gap. So it is priced very appropriately, in my opinion. And I think it is the dream owner-operator camera. And I'd love to have one. Now, that begs the question, will I buy this? And the answer is, not right now. I would love to own it at some point down the road, but I have other things that I think are better investments for me. Um, I, I'm really interested in learning more and experimenting with these Cook lenses that came out last week. Um, I, I think that for me right now, uh, new lenses, a new set of lenses would probably make more sense than a new camera because the Burano would give me some advantages over my FX6 in terms of higher resolution recording options, so more detail, uh, a better codec, so I can push the files a little more in post. But the truth is, I don't push my files too much in post. And the truth is, most of my work is sufficient with the FX6 at this point. So will I buy this camera? Maybe, but not right now. The thing that's really going to change the look of my images is going to be new glass. I have a lot of G Master lenses. They're fantastic. I'm not getting rid of them. I love them. They're great for owner-operator glass. They're great for photography, and they're great for corporate video and stuff like that. But when I'm shooting more stylized projects, whether it's a doc project, whether it's um, uh, an, an ad campaign or a brand anthem, anything like that, glass is going to change the look more than a new camera. And that is what I'm looking at right now. I think for me, I love my G Master lenses, but I do want the ability to have a slightly different look sometimes. And so I'm kind of interested in the new Cook lenses. I've said in the last podcast and in podcasts before that I believe that uh, owner operators are better served with photo lenses. I still believe by, I still believe in that, but I already own all the photo glass I could ever want. Um, so at this point, I'm considering maybe getting those Cook lenses and having a completely different style to my filming in terms of those lenses are gonna be way less clinical than my G Master Glass. They're gonna give me a completely different look to my work than the G Master Glass, way more so than the Burano would. So I think right now my money is better invested in that or something similar 
than a new camera. But that being said, I can see me renting this for certain projects. I have a couple of projects uh, right now. I have this one really large commercial project, for example, that I could see me, if, if I land the project, it probably won't be shot till next year. I could see me renting the Burano for that. Um, I could see me renting it for several projects and then maybe down the road buying it um, depending on what kind of work I'm doing at that time. But right now, I don't think I'm going to buy one. I, I can't justify it. It's an amazing camera, but it's not going to change my work necessarily. It would make certain things easier. It would unlock certain potential uh, items or, or certain things that I could do that maybe I can't do now. But in the grand scheme of things, my FX3 and my FX6, and even the A1s I use for photography and sometimes the C cameras, they're pretty good, man. If you haven't seen the Creator trailer, go on to YouTube and look at the Creator and watch the trailer. That camera was shot on the FX3. It does a great job of demonstrating what you could do with cameras you probably already own. So today, I'd love to own the Burano, but the truth is, is the current cameras I have are plenty good enough for creating great imagery. It comes down, at the end of the day, to lighting, lens choice, set design, and things of that nature far more than it does the camera, which is why I'm more interested in a new set of lenses than I am a camera at this point. But I would love to have this camera at some point down the road because it is the camera I've always wanted. And I do think it is pro, uh, priced fairly. So I plan to rent it for projects and then maybe buy it down the road, but I just won't be buying it today. But I do wanna say that this is a tremendous move by Sony. Um, I was interested in the in the V-Raptor when it first came out. I was interested in the Canon C500 Mark II, but this camera smokes those, in my opinion, for most of the work that most people are doing, and I think it is the perfect owner-operator camera. I'm super pumped that Sony has come out with this. There's more about this camera than I covered today. I just didn't want this podcast to go any longer than it already has. But if you want to learn more, I want to encourage you to go to newshooter.com, look at their uh, initial re review. I, I wouldn't even call it a review, but it's like... a explanation of what this camera is. Uh, I trust Matthew at uh, New Shooter. He's a real world DP, not just some YouTuber. So he's somebody you can actually uh, read his content and really digest it and understand it. So my recommendation is go to newshooter.com and read what Matthew has to say about this camera. I think you'll learn a lot about it more than I covered in this podcast. But I, for those of you who did listen to this podcast, I want to thank you for listening. Um, remember to go to Facebook, type in Filming with Josh and ask to join the group today. I'd love to see you there. And I can't wait to talk to you guys next week. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today.